Welcome back to Beyond Sunday School. This season, we are looking at uh, putting Jesus in his place. So a little little tongue-in-cheek reference there to uh, looking at Jesus through the lens of history. And we are working our way uh, through the New Testament in its world, an introduction to the history literature, and theology of the first Christians by N.T. Wright and Michael Bird. It is, uh, it's an excellent New Testament survey. It's up to date, asking lots of great questions. And uh, I, I, know, I know for me, as I'm working my way through it, it's challenging and uh, has me thinking about a lot of things. And so hopefully as we work through this together, it does the same for you. Uh, as always, we are recording this live on Wednesday night at seven o'clock in the Zoom room. And if you would like to be a part of that recording time so that you can engage in the discussion and uh, ask questions as they come to your mind, we'd love to have you. Just reach out to me any on any social media. You can find me at Daniel M. Rose. And uh, yeah, just let me know and I'll get you the link. It never changes. It's always the same each week. So we would love to have you join us. And uh, so as we go through, you may hear some voices uh, during this episode. And those are my friends who are with me here in the Zoom room tonight. So uh, without further ado, we will, we will dive in here. Uh, last, last time we looked at uh, kind of this idea, really the last few weeks, we've been looking at this idea of Jesus as prophet and his prophetic role and what, uh, what that looks like and how it translates into Jesus's self-awareness. And that's, that's really, uh, what we're talking about right now is how did Jesus understand who he was, right? So you could maybe another tongue in cheek kind of way of saying this is who did Jesus think he was? Right. So uh, we're going to put him in his place and we're asking him who he thought he was. And to do so, we, we have to do, you know, we have to do work in history. We have to do some work in theology and uh, literature. And, and we've talked about those things and how we approach the New Testament uh, and really the, the whole of the scripture uh, using, using those three tools of history, theology, and literature. And you can go back and listen to our previous season on uh, putting the New Testament in its place and the background of the New Testament to, to get a sense of, of those things. So uh, tonight we are focusing our attention on the uh, kind of the primary way that Jesus referred to himself. The description that Jesus used of himself more than any other was that of son of man. And uh, so this is, this is one of those, uh, one of those things that is just uh, loaded up with all kinds of uh, depth and just, it is, it is pretty, pretty thick here. Um, and, and so we're going to, we're going to be talking about a whole lot of different things. We're going to be all over the place. And uh, we are going to, we're going to talk about the Old Testament. We're going to talk about the New Testament. We're going to talk uh, about some of the intertestamental writings uh, like First Enoch. 
and uh, we'll actually read uh, a little bit out of first Enoch tonight. So we're just, we're just going to kind of be all over the place. And, uh, and so Janet and Joanne and Dorothy, as you guys have questions, interrupt, ask. And, uh, and so here we go. We're going to start with the Hebrew, right? So son of man in Hebrew is literally Ben Adam. And, uh, and it has, it's got a lot of, it's got a lot of different meanings, a lot of shades to it, but uh, the primary way of of referring, uh, primary understanding of Ben Adam, is uh, that of human being. Uh, it simply simply just means human being. Now, in Hebrew, uh, there was two words for man. There was Enosh and Adam. And uh, you can get a sense of, you know, where Adam in uh, in Genesis chapter one might have gotten his name from, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, he was he was Adam. He was man. That was that was his name. And uh, and so we get this we get this interplay of these two ways of understanding these two words of man uh, in Psalm eight four. It says, what is man, Enosh, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, Ben Adam, that you should care for him? You see, there's this, there's this interplay here uh, in, in Hebrew where they have multiple words, and they're, um, and they're pointing here to this, this idea almost of a, of a mere humanity, of a, of a sim- simply human, right? So what is it, you know, wh- why should God... Why should God be, be mindful of just a human being? And, uh, and so that's, this is one of the ways uh, that this, this phrase, son of man, uh, is, is meant to be, to be understood. In Ezekiel, he is primarily referred to as son of man by God. And uh, so obviously, Ezekiel is not the Messiah. Ezekiel is not the Christ. And so what, what was going on there? Why, why did God, you know, refer to Ezekiel as son of man? Uh, probably because he meant something along the lines of mere mortal. The idea that Ezekiel is just a, a mere man. So when God is, is speaking to Ezekiel, he's like saying, hey, mere mortal, hey, you, simple man, you just a man. And, uh, and so that's, a that gets into this, this interplay of, of this word, Ben Adam. Now, Matthew chapter nine, verses six through eight, we see, we see this, this, this interplay, the, the way the scholars put it is a, a, a Hebraic idiom, right? So a turn of phrase, a turn of saying in the Hebrew, uh, so Matthew 9, 6, 8, it, it reads like this, says, but I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So real quick, the context here is Jesus healing the paralytic that's been brought in by his friends, right? And so they've, they've brought him in. We learned from uh, Mark chapter two, that to get this man to Jesus, they've had to dig a hole through the roof. They drop him down and Jesus looks at the man. And doesn't say, 
you know, take up your mat and go home. He says, I forgive you of your sins. And of course the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders get all upset and bent out of shape and that kind of thing. And so Jesus says, I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. Uh, now this was powerful because in the first century, people understood that sin and things like being paralyzed, physical illness were tied together. So there was a belief that if you had some sin in your life or your parents had sinned or something really bad, had, you know, you'd, you'd done something bad that that would play out in God's judgment against you through physical illness. Now, Jesus later on turns that whole thing on its head. Um, but, but this was, this was kind of the underlying belief here. And Jesus plays on that and says, you know, Hey, get up, take your mat and go home. And when the man does, when the man got up and went home, what that did is it displayed that Jesus had authority to forgive sin because now the man's, because the man's sin was forgiven, he could now walk. This was, this was what was going on inside the first century, you know, mind. And so then the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Now, so you have the italics I've added here to try to give some emphasis to what's going on. You have Jesus referencing himself as the son of man. And then you have Matthew, uh, you know, who doesn't repeat that phrase, but he just says to man. And, and we'll get into this here in a minute, but probably what is going on here is that Matthew is really trying to play up this Hebraic idiom. He is trying to play up this idea that son of man, you know, means human being, mere mortal, that kind of thing here, because he's playing it off of this idea of a man. And, uh, and so he's, he's just, he, he's, he's doing some wordplay here. It's good. It's good literature, really. It's just, it's just good. It's just good writing. Um, so, so we go from Hebrew to Daniel chapter seven. Now, this is where things start to get really interesting. Daniel chapter seven is the vision of the four beasts, right? That rise up out of the sea to bring destruction on the earth. And, uh, and so it's these, these four beasts that represented at the time that Daniel was being written, Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece. And in that vision in Daniel chapter 7, we read that these four beasts are stripped of their power by this mysterious person who is one like a son of man. Uh, and and we, we get that in you know kind of the specific description here in verses 13 and 14 where it says, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power of all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one 
that will never be destroyed. So there is, there is something going on here with this phrase, one like a son of man. And it's, it's now it's, it's something more than just a human being, a mere mortal, right? There's, there's something else going on. It's been, it's been given a, a weight, a gravitas, a, a thickness, if you will, of meaning. And, and we don't really know for sure what, what's going on. When, when you read it in, when you read Daniel chapter seven in its fullest context, uh, it, it seems as though uh, this one, like a son of man is, is kind of representative of the kind of, in a sense, the best of the people of Israel, almost like this, this collection, this representative collection of the people of Israel who are, who are standing up against uh, the oppressors. Uh, now, in, in later Jewish writings, uh, like First Enoch, the Son of Man from Daniel is given a messianic interpretation. This is really important. This is, this is not people writing, you know, this is not Christians writing uh, after, after the time of Jesus and, and reading, reading things back. This is written you know, probably during, uh, during, during the time of, of the rebellion. And, uh, and so, uh, we, we get this, there's this, this passage here, uh, and just so you guys have a sense of what first Enoch was, um, it, first Enoch is a composite document of five independent works, which were written between the third century BC in the first century AD and pseudonymously, I hate that word, can never pronounce it, um, attributed to Enoch, the seventh son of Adam. Uh, so one can find mention of a messianic son of man in the book of parables or similitudes, which is first Enoch 37 through 71. And, and they combine images from the Psalms, Isaiah and Daniel to describe a heavenly deliverer. Now, uh, that is that's quoted right here out of uh, and Bird's uh, New Testament survey. That's kind of their their summary of of what First Enoch is. And here's here's what it says. Here's what they wrote. This is again, um, this is probably written uh, before uh, you know before Jesus's time. It says at that place, I saw the one to whom belongs the time before time. And his head was white like wool. And there was with him another individual whose face was like that of a human being. His countenance was full of grace, like that of one among the holy angels. And I asked the one from among the angels who was going with me and who had revealed to me all the secrets regarding the one who was born of human beings. Who is this? And from whence is he who is going as the prototype of the before time? And he answered me and said to me, this is the son of man to whom belongs righteousness and with whom righteousness dwells. And he will open all the hidden storerooms for the Lord of the spirits has chosen him. And he is destined to be victorious before the Lord of the spirits in eternal uprightness. This son of man whom you have seen is the one who would remove the kings and the mighty ones from their comfortable seats and the strong ones from their thrones. He shall loosen the reins of the strong and crush the teeth of sinners. So 
you, you what is that what does that sound like to you i'm just curious as i was reading that um did that ring any bells for you did that did that sound like anything that you're familiar with it sounded like some of the other visions that were described in the bible like in revelation yeah. i was just thinking revelation yeah. yeah that's the only thing i could think of yeah when i read that uh Revelation is exactly what came to mind, right? The description of yeah. the, you know, the one with hair like wool, white like wool, all this, that picture, boy, that sounded, <laughs> that sounded very familiar, right? So, so you see how, this is just another example of how you see how the, the Jewish world and the Christian world, the, the world of the New Testament, they're all tied together. This is stuff, not like things that are pulled apart, um, they, they were, they were coming at things very similarly. And so, uh, so, so that, so they're taking this idea of the son of man and they are, they are applying it. They're thinking of it here in terms of, of a messianic, uh, kind of, kind of way. And so, um, so, so we have to, so, so we have to understand that, when Jesus starts talking about the son of man, when he starts using that language, uh, there were connections being made by his listeners being made back to Ezekiel, but also being made to Daniel being probably uh, being made back to uh, first Enoch here. And uh, in these messianic expectations with, with that phrase. Now we have, in the New Testament, we've got some of these end of times, uh, these these uh, these eschatological passages, right, uh, where where we see the, the the picture of the the cataclysmic end, and uh, in Mark thirteen, specifically verse twenty six, Jesus says, "At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory." Right, so he is he is definitely beginning to tap into some of this tradition. We see him do the same thing in Matthew 24 and 25 in Luke chapter 21. And in a little bit, we'll, we'll look a little more closely here at Mark 13. But the point is the big idea, the big point of of this, this part of the conversation is that Daniel seven carried a lot of weight in this image of son of man out of Daniel seven uh, brought with it these messianic expectations, these messianic interpretations. And so Jesus knew all of this. And so when he starts saying things like, starts referring to himself as a son of man, it, it brought these kinds of ideas and images into people's minds. Now, there's a, another way we need to understand this. And that is the son of man in Aramaic. Uh, which is Jesus's native language, right? This is this is how Jesus, more than more than not, was probably speaking. He was probably speaking in Aramaic, and so uh, Jesus Jesus' native language for for Son of Man was Bar Enasha, and uh, you know Enasha sounds very much like Enosh, right? If you go back to our first uh, slide, there back to Psalm eight four, right? Who is man? Who is Enosh? Uh, Hebrew and, and Aramaic uh, were were very closely related linguistically, um, so 
so in Aramaic, Baranasha was just kind of generic humanity, a man. It could even be just someone, uh, but it was also self-referential. Uh, this man, right? So is is kind of pointing back to this idea of a, of a very specific self-referencing. Now we we're pretty sure this is what's happening in at least a couple of these verses, right? In Luke nine fifty eight, Jesus Jesus says, "Foxes have dens and birds have nests." but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Probably, probably what he's do, what he's saying, this is probably just an Aramaic statement of saying, but this man has no place to lay his head. And, you know, that's, it's probably a, you know, they're, they're probably just doing a straight translation from the Aramaic into the Greek here. And, uh, and so, so this is probably just a self-referential kind of statement. Um, Luke seven thirty-three through 34 says, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So again, uh, you know, we think this is probably self-referential. So this man pointing to himself, basically saying, I... I came eating and drinking and you say, right. So there's this, there's this sense that, um, that son of man can take that is just a, a self-referential uh, statement. And, and so as we're, as we're reading through the gospels, as we're working our way through the narratives about Jesus, we have to be aware of that, right? We have to, we have to pay attention to, to this and, and ask ourselves when we get to you know, this phrase, son of man, is he talking about himself? Is he simply being self-referential saying this man, or is he tapping into that deeper stream from Daniel chapter seven and in the apocalyptic writings? And, you know, this idea of these messianic expectations. So, so that's, that's part of the work that, that we have to do. So what do we, yeah. Why, why sometimes is son of man, like son is capitalized and man is capitalized and other times it's in lowercase. Does that mean something? It's, it is probably the translator trying to make that distinguishing uh, between Jesus being self-referential, this okay. man, and Jesus tapping into that that deeper, uh, that deeper stream, right? So the NIV, for instance, here capitalizes son of man, um, you know, this way now partially probably. Uh, oh, and the other thing that could be happening is, uh, if we go back to, um, you know, uh, like if we go back here to, Daniel chapter seven, right? 13 through 14. And it's, and it's the lowercase son of man. Um, that's because it's because it's re it's related to Ezekiel. You go here to the new Testament and it's being referred back to Jesus. 
And so the interpret the, the translators are also uh, oftentimes, especially in the NIV, um, will will follow a capitalization. They follow they they capitalize anything referring to Jesus, God, or the Holy Spirit. So okay. uh, so that's so that's the other thing that's happening. It depends on depends on your translations. Some translations don't do that. Um, the NIV is pretty consistent, and that's where these these verses are quoted from. Anything that relates to Jesus is going to be capitalized. So, okay, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. Thank you. Yeah, really good question. Really good question. So, the next thing we have to do, we, we need to wrestle with is what do we make of all of this, right? So we've got these three different ways of of understanding this phrase "Son of Man." Uh, so, so what do we do with it? Well, the first level is. We start with it being an idiomatic self-reference. That's the Aramaic, right? And even in some sense, the Hebrew. Um, and Jesus certainly used the phrase this way. We just looked at that, right? And, and so, uh, and so we we I think I think it's smart uh, to start there. Like as we're reading through, instead of instead of immediately reading into the phrase son of man, these, these messianic expectations, these things like, uh, you know, out of, out of first Enoch and, and the Daniel seven stuff, instead of just immediately jumping to that, I think the best thing to do is, is we start with Occam's razor, right? The simplest answer is the best answer is Jesus here in this particular verse, in this particular moment in the story being self-referential or is he tapping into this deeper stream of, of Daniel chapter seven? And uh, so, so that's, that's step one. Now, at the same, same time, there is the danger of reading every single son of man in that idiomatic way, in that, in that self-referential way. And I don't think that's right either. It's, it's, it's not, it's not that we take that phrase and just lump everything into it as, oh, it's just idiomatic. It's just Jesus saying this man, me, being self-referential. We, we have to do the work. We, we start with the simplest. And if, and if we look at that context and say, you know, I think there might be more going on here when Jesus uses this phrase. So, for instance... Some scholars, we, we looked back here at, um, uh, where'd it go? We look back here, Matthew 9, 6 through 8, right? Now, the, the first level, right, is the idiomatic, son of man. I mean, it's self-referencing, you know, him saying, but I want you to know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. Is he, is he, is he simply being self-referential there or is there something more going on now? If he's, if he's being self-referential, <laughs> there's more going on <laughs> in this case, because he is, he is saying that he as a man has authority to forgive sins. And this is what leaves the people so shocked so, so there's a temptation here to, to say, oh, he's definitely talking about Daniel chapter seven. He's, he's tying into this deeper thing, except that Matthew 
clarifies the way the people heard it at the end by going back to just this word, man. This is kind of the beauty of the writing here. Jesus, Jesus here is using son of man self-referentially. I, you can read it as, but I want you to know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. And then the people are, are left in awe and they praise God because God had given such authority to a man. You see, in the Greek, uh, that, that, that word a, you can add it or not add it. It's just, it's, it's, you know, it's just, it's not there. It's not a word. And so, you know, so that's, so, so what's happening here is, is, is there's, there's more going on, but there's not, but there's not happening here. What we sometimes want to read into it. We're not going to read Daniel seven into it because at the end of verse eight, we get the clarification of the way the people heard it. The people heard Jesus saying, saying that self-referentially, right? And so, so it's, it's, it's kind of fun to think through this and, and try, to, try to piece this stuff together. Um, and if you think, about, you think about Jesus saying, I have authority on earth to forgive sins, that would leave people in awe if he's then able to heal the guy and in their minds going, oh, yeah, wow, he really does have authority to forgive sins. Can you believe it? A man has authority to forgive sins. And if Jesus gets them thinking that way, then, then that begins to set up this deeper understanding, right? To where he's, he's, he's starting to move the way they think about him, the way they even begin to think uh, about how he might use Son of Man in the future. So, uh, now, uh, th- one other thing here is that, uh, again, just because Jesus uses the phrase son of man self-referentially doesn't mean that he always uses that way. Bird and Wright, you know, they make a good point. They say, if the early church made the connection to Daniel 7, certainly Jesus would have too, right? So, like, certainly, certainly if the early church made that connection, Jesus would have made it which means he would have used this phrase, son of man, tying into that Daniel 7 narrative. So, what again, what do we make of this? Now, one of the, one of the tricks, I guess you could use, one of the shorthands uh, that Wright and Bird suggest, and I think they're really onto something, is anytime you see the phrase coming of the son of man, the coming of the son of man, some along those lines in the New Testament, uh, off the off the lips of Jesus, that should always, probably always, be understood in light of Daniel seven. Okay, so now as we think about this Daniel seven stuff, as we think about what's happening uh, there, something so, some things we need to remember. First, Daniel seven is not about the end of space time. Uh, some people read Daniel seven, and it is it is a crazy. It's crazy stuff, right? I mean, it's the it's these four beasts, and it's and they're rising out of the water, and they're destroying the earth, and there's there's a lot of there's a lot of wild, you know, happening here in in Daniel chapter seven. Um, so, uh, you know, just just to give you a sense, um, 
He says, in my vision, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea, four great beasts, each, each different from the others came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. I mean, this is, this is crazy stuff. And so as we, uh, as we, as we read that, uh, later, later interpreters, uh, people kind of in the mid 1800s start reading Daniel and saying, ah, this is about the second coming. Ah, this is about the end of the space time continuum. They probably wouldn't use those words, but this is the end of the world kind of stuff. And, and that is a, that is a misinterpretation. The early church did not interpret Daniel seven as referencing the second coming. That's not how the early church understood it. Uh, that is not, you know, it's, that's, that is a very new interpretation of Daniel chapter 7. Now, uh, as, as Daniel 7 goes on, um, we understand here uh, in the context that this phrase, one like a son of man, really, really is understood to embody God's kingship and reign. Uh, so this one like a son of man uh, you know, embodies, embodies God's, God's rule and reign in the world. And uh, so you can see how that move takes place. If this is the embodiment of God's kingship and reign, uh, it would make sense that it, he, this, this one, like a son of man uh, could potentially be something more. And if you remember uh, when we read uh, out of that first Enoch passage, uh, he asked the question, uh, who is this? And from whence is, is he who is going as the prototype of the before time? They were, by, by the time that first Enoch was written, this one, like a son of man, was understood to be preexistent, right? That, that, that he was eternal, that this, the son of man was, was eternal. So, so there's a lot of theology that is being developed from the time of Daniel chapter 7 to the time of, of first Enoch. Um, and it brings all that baggage with it. So let's look specifically here at Mark chapter 13 and, and see how do, we, how do we apply this? How do we try to understand what is going on with this, um, you know, with, with this, with this son of man language here? So, uh, you know, you have Mark 13 opens up and uh, in verse one, it says, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Verse two, do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus, not one stone here will be left on another and everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? So Jesus gets asked about this destruction of the temple. And what, is, what, does, what does he describe? He describes a great tribulation, right? He describes this, this scene of just 
you know, it's going to be, it is going to be awful. He, he tells them that they're going to be false messiahs, right? He tells them, Hey, don't, don't be deceived. There are false messiahs. This, this is going to be, this is going to be crazy. And, uh, and he says, you're going to be brought before magistrates. And uh, this is, this is going, this is what's going to happen. And so what do they need to know in light of this? Well, they need to know that Jerusalem will be destroyed. Like that's, that's happening. That is it, it, the, the war machine is coming and Jerusalem and the temple, it is, it is going to be destroyed. And so then, then what should they do? Well, they should escape. It's interesting here. Jesus doesn't tell them to fight. He doesn't tell them to stand up and defend Jerusalem and the temple. He says, escape while you can get out. This is, this is what needs to happen. So there's this, there's this cataclysmic event, right? And what is happening? What, why, why is this cataclysmic event going to happen? Well, it's because this is the final judgment on the city due to its rebellion against God, right? Jesus, he doesn't, he doesn't pull any punches. Um, he says, he says, how dreadful uh, in, in verse 14, he says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house. This is the fleeing part. He says, how dreadful will it be in those days for those for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them at that time. Then he gets into the false messiahs, right? I mean, it is, it is this just an unbelievable cataclysmic event. Um, and, and it is, it is this judgment. Now there will be a great, uh, there will be, there will be great deliverance as promised in the prophets, right? I mean, the, um, the, the elect, uh, will be, will be saved. You know, those, those people will be saved. Uh, verse 26, you know, this is where we get the son of man language. At that time, people will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and the ends of the heavens. Um, and so you have, you have this, this deliverance and there will be vindication of the prophet that claimed to be embodying everything that Jerusalem, the temple stood for. Right. He says, um, truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I mean, this is this is the, the vindication uh, that that what Jesus says here is 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 going to happen. It is all going to be made true. And uh, and that's what's going to take place in this cataclysmic event. So. So to, to try to pull all this stuff together. Um, Wright and Bird put it this way. They say, in sum, the phrase son of man is used as a self-designation by Jesus, exploiting the ambiguity of the Aramaic idiom 
and marrying to mysterious to the mysterious figure of Daniel 7:13 through 14. So what they're saying is Jesus Jesus is doing this word play, right? Of of kind of bouncing back and forth between this man, me, the self-referential, self-designation kind of thing. And, and, and in Aramaic, it's 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 ambiguous. You know, you don't quite know, but he marries it to this idea that we see in Daniel 7, 13 through 14. He says, as a cipher for the eschatological role that he exercises as the divine agent of the kingdom. So cipher, you know, I mean, this what he what they're saying here is. This is the clue. This is the thing that unlocks Jesus's self-identity. Jesus understands himself to be this divine agent. This, uh, this, the word we're looking for is Messiah, right? He says, in this sense, son of man. Wow, the typos are strong tonight. Um, in this sense, son of man is more a role than a title. The point is that this figure now does two things. He embodies God's own reign seated at his right hand, and he symbolizes God's people vindicated after suffering. So when we start talking now about this, this language of son of man, um, it is, we're, we're beginning to now fall into line with the way that uh, the Jewish people of Jesus's day and age would have been begun thinking about it. And Jesus expands it. it ex, he expands it from this discussion of, uh, you know, that is, that is in, in en, first Enoch to, to really the only word that makes sense here, which is Messiah. And, uh, and so what, so when we, when we start understanding son of man beyond, um, beyond just the self-referential thing, uh, we're looking, we're thinking about Jesus as the son of man as one who embodies God's reign and symbolizes God's people vindicated after suffering, which if you think about what is going on with, um, with Jesus and the crucifixion and resurrection, is that not exactly what he does? He vindicates God's people after suffering. You know, they've suffered. He now goes to the cross and in so doing, experiences the fullness, the absolute fullness of, of exile. And in his resurrection, he shows that he is vindicated. He rises again. And, and through that resurrection, all things are now reconciled. So this is, this is what's going on here. Um, and certainly Jesus, certainly Jesus would have, would have understood uh, things this way. You know, this is, uh, this is how, this is how he, it seems as though these are the moves that he began to make. So uh, next week, we are going to ask the question, did Jesus think he was the Messiah? Now, Jesus seems to be pointing in that way from everything we're learning, everything we've learned so far, this idea of prophet, how the prophet piece ties into the son of man identity. Uh, so, so does Jesus think of himself as the Messiah? That's, that's where we go next week. So, uh, as we, as we wrap up here, uh, do you guys, do you guys have any thoughts, questions, reflections? On tonight? There's a lot. 
I have some questions, but I think they might be answered next week. So I'll wait. <laughs> okay. Well, go, go for it. And let's, let's see. Well, I guess I don't understand why he was, he trying to introduce the idea of Messiah gradually. Why did he sometimes use the same phrase as self-referential and sometimes as, mm-hmm. you know, Messiah idea? Yeah. Was he trying to gradually get people used to this idea or it's just, yeah. I, now it's a great question, Joanna. It's, it's, it's right, right here. I, and I think, I think the reason is, um, I think it is that gradual thing. I think, I think what Jesus is doing is he is moving, he's moving along in his teaching. This man, son of man, Daniel seven, son of man, and then ultimately gets to this idea of, of Messiah. Um, and, you know, and I think, I think Jesus is developing his teaching in, in the reform tradition. We taught, we call this, uh, the, the organic un, unfolding, right. Of, of scripture. And, uh, and so I think this is what we see Jesus doing here is that he is, he's organically during his, his ministry. Uh, he's, he's unfolding this, he's developing this idea like any good teacher would, right? Um, I think if he came right out and said, yo guys, I'm the Messiah, what's up? Um, they, they probably <laughs> they probably would have hung him on a cross uh, pretty darn quick and uh, never would have got to the other stuff that he needed to get to, right? So, so it's probably also a strategic thing here, uh, wanting, to, wanting to stay alive long enough to teach what he needed to teach, to say what he needed to say, uh, to communicate what he needed to communicate. So I think it's, I think it's kind of a, a both and gradual, a gradual explanation, but then also strategic, uh, because as soon as he really starts getting into this Messiah stuff, you see that, uh, his life does not last much longer. Yeah. So, okay. So, does that so, kind of go along with just what, what you asked when he said, my time has not yet come or he told people, don't tell anybody about this. Yep. It kind of all goes along together with, yeah. okay. Sorry. Yeah. I think, okay. I, I think that's why we have what they call the messianic secret, right? That's yeah. what you're, that's, that's the fancy way of where that they talk about Jesus saying, don't tell anyone the messianic yeah. secret. Yeah. Um, I always wondered why he would say that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hey, I, this is kind of along the same line. So when we're reading, why is it so important that we distinguish when he's doing self-referential, the self-referential, or when he's doing the Messiah thing? I mean, does it really matter? I mean, you know, in the long run, does it really matter? No, no. probably not. <laughs> right? Okay, that's um, kind of what I thought. But. In the, but what it does do, I think, is if we sl- it, it slows us down sometimes. To, to think about that text and you think about the word play that takes place in that uh, in that Matthew 9 story we, we looked at there right like there's something kind of cool uh, about that word play of son of man man the Jesus probably using it self-referentially um, and and yet some still there was this 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 deeper, connection going on like there's it just it adds some it adds some color i think some layers to the text 
um, that uh. can maybe sometimes take some of those old stage stories that we've heard a thousand times yeah. and, and we can kind of turn the prism on it and go, Oh, Oh, that's pretty nifty. Like these, I think it can add some appreciation for us to the text. Um, because I think sometimes we think of, we think of these guys, we think of these, these, the, the ancients as though they were um, less than, as though they were not as intelligent as us and those kinds of things. Right. Oh, I don't, I don't yeah. think we intentionally do it, I don't, <laughs> but, but, you know, they didn't have iPhones. So clearly, Clearly they must not have been as smart as us, you know, it's, you know, it's like, no, these were some pretty, pretty intelligent people and the way they wrote was, was pretty amazing. Yes. And so, and but, so turned, yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess I just think, you know, like the one about not having a place to lay his head, the son of man, I'm like, well, he is the Messiah. So really he is saying the Messiah doesn't have a place to lay his yeah. head. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep, oh, yep. well. <laughs> I lost my internet for a little while, so I missed something. But oh. this has been so helpful for me for that. Uh, when we refer to that Daniel 7 thing, I had never connected that. And I think that really helps me because hmm. I wondered why Jesus wasn't a little bit more. Uh, that he, he did he understand that people would connect the two? I guess that's it. But Joanne kind of asked that question. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's on gradual because he he asked one of his disciples, maybe it was Peter, who do people say I am? And so maybe he was getting that feeling. Are they getting the connection like I'm getting it now? You know, yeah. I, yeah. I had never thought of that because I thought, why doesn't he make it clear that he's the son of man, a son right. of God? But yeah. maybe it had to be more gradual. But I, that was great. I, I really appreciated that uh, oh, good. explanation of Daniel 7. Yeah. Well, good. Good. Yeah. Well, you know, ladies, next, next week, we look at this question of, did Jesus claim to be the Messiah? And then in two weeks, we're going to look at, did Jesus claim to be God? So we're, we're kind of, we're kind of working our way through this. this, this we're doing thing. it gradually. <laughs> we're doing it gradually because my goodness, our butts could not endure uh, much longer. That's for sure. So uh, my butt's fine. It's my brain. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, Hey, do you guys if, do you guys have any other questions? Oh, appreciate what you shared tonight. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. You're yes. welcome. Not a question, just a a lot to I, think I, about. I never thought about it before, but the process Jesus must have had to go through to lead the people to the place where they would yeah. really know who he was and yeah. trust him and it's it's, it's remarkable. Um, yeah. You know, we, I think sometimes we take for granted the reality that we have 2000 years of history uh, behind us and uh, the, you know, so much, I think of our confidence of our um, ability to simply just kind of get it uh, is, is, is built on, it's built on the shoulders of so many saints before us. And, um, you know, you, you start you start thinking about the, yeah, like you said, the work that he had to put in to get, to get to that place was, it was significant. And, uh, and we're only getting, we're only getting snippets, right? I mean, the gospels cover three, basically they cover three years of his life. So you have to wonder how much more teaching, how much more, like, Oh my goodness. You know, we spend, people spend their whole lives studying one gospel. Yeah. In depth. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so could you imagine the, the, the living with him and, and hearing him teach every single day and being with him for three years, every single day, the, no wonder these guys' lives were changed so, so deeply. I have a quick question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Enoch thing. Yeah. So is that something that scholars study just to give background to the Jewish yep. you know, way yep. of life? Right? Yeah. So it, what it does, it's, um, it's, it's, it's one of those texts, um, you know, uh, that, that gives us, gives us insight into that second, second temple period. It gives us insight into that, into that, you know, quiet period between Malachi and, and Matthew. Um, do they so, derive spiritual guidance from that too, or is it mostly just historical? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of similar to the, like the Christian Apocrypha, right? Where, um, so it's not part of the Apocrypha. It's not part of the Apocrypha. It's part of the pseudepigrapha, I think is what it's called. Um, and so it's, uh, it's, it's an important, it's an important text. Um, uh, some, some people will, will take more devotional reading out of it than others. Um, the Maccabees, you know, certainly, certainly took, took some, some identity formation things out of, out of those texts, um, as, you know, because these were, they're, they're probably fit into, you know, maybe think of your favorite, uh, non-biblical devotional, right? Like maybe, uh, my utmost for his highest or, or something along those lines that, you know, we read them faithfully and they, and they inspire us and they give us spiritual guidance and direction, but we don't put them on the same level as the scriptures. Right. Okay. These, these texts yeah. fit in that same, in that same vein. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Cool. I, yeah. I don't have any more. <laughs> Thank yeah you, it, it helps orient things, right? So, all right. Well, Hey gang, just want to remind you, uh, you are welcome to join us Wednesdays at seven o'clock. If you want to be a part of this live recording and discussion, we'd love to have you in the zoom room. Um, and, uh, if you have found this episode helpful, insightful, interesting, uh, maybe just, I don't know, think I'm just a big heretic, whatever it might be, uh, would love (laughs) for you to share this out on your, uh, on your social media, Facebook, Twitter, wherever, and, uh, and invite other people to give this a listen. If you're listening to this on uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify, please leave us a rating and a comment. That helps other people find this podcast. And uh, so until next time, love well, my friends.